Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. To myself and our children and grandchildren are the only ones that carry on her family's legacy. I always remember her taking the time to Dubbin, a habit that she passed on to us. Learning the beautiful brachas and messages in Shmona Esrei with Devorah brings my mother closer to me, especially at this time of the year. It's an honor for me to sponsor today's shir in her memory and thereby continue her legacy. May the neshama of Sarah Bas Yitzchak have an aliyah and be'amelitz yashur for us all. Amen. Thank you so much, Penny, for sharing that with us. So beautiful. So in light of that, and um, with that thought in mind of our next bracha, which is about Geula, redemption, and certainly uh, it's interesting that this week's Parsha, we begin Shemos, Chumash Shemos, and of course it's the beginning of the Jewish people's um, slavery in Egypt and their eventual coming out of Egypt. And of course, this was, of course, we don't want to compare anything to the Holocaust, but I have heard rabbis say that whatever we think the Holocaust was, which we can't imagine in our wildest dreams, the experience that the Jews had in Egypt was, if not the same and even worse, it was very, very much what we experienced, you know, not long ago in our generation as well. And so the Jews were being tortured and enslaved and terrible things, as we know, you know, babies being used as bricks and Pharaoh bathing in the blood of Jewish children and all kinds of horrific things. And um, the next bracha that we're going to look at is the bracha number seven in the request section. It's actually called the Geula bracha. And it's a, it refers to the redemption, not only of the Jewish people as a nation, but each one of our individual and personal geula redemption. And um, just interestingly to um, bring this uh, idea over to tefillah, uh, Rabbi Shimshon Pinkas, Zechat Tzadik Lubracha, who wrote a book, Gates of Prayer, Sha'arim Tefillah, originally written in Hebrew, now available in English. He writes about... Um, that there are many words in Hebrew for the word to cry out to God. And actually in the Parsha that we just read in Shemos, Perak Bet, Pasuk uh, Lamed Gimel, sorry, Chaf Gimel, it says there, and I'm just going to say it in English, the children of Israel groaned because of their work and they cried out. Their outcry because of the work went up to God and God heard their moaning. Now, in that sentence alone, we have like four words of crying, moaning, groaning. You know, I mean, the Jewish, uh, the Hebrew language is full of these words. My sister once told me that, you know, her kids went to day school and they went to Israel on a trip. And, um, you know, their Hebrew, their conversational Hebrew was not too good. But she said, but if people want to ask us about persecution and, uh, you know, 
crying in exile. We know a lot of words for those things, but how to get to the bathroom, we don't necessarily know how to, how to do that. So unfortunately, uh, you know, we have a lot of words for these things. And Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Pincus in his book, Sha'arim B'Tfilah, says that there are actually 10 different types of tefillah based on these different subtleties of these different types of words that connote crying out, uh, beseeching, groaning, etc. So I just want to read you a little bit from his book or one idea from it, because I think it's a great companion for us as we as we go deeper into what the idea of tefillah is in general. So um, in the beginning of the book, he talks about a certain word that um, uh, represents tefillah, which is the word bitsur. And bitsur is calling out in distress. And, you know, he says, unfortunately, the way that people are wired is that we pray and attach ourselves, we can pray and attach ourselves to Hashem without any difficulties. But unfortunately, it's much harder for us to arouse ourselves when everything is going well. As Devon HaMelech said, in my distress, using the word bitsur, I will call Hashem. So human beings are wired in such a way that when things are going well, we often forget Hashem. And it's the distressful situations that naturally draw a person to Hashem, even against his own will. Just to quote from his book, not only that, but a person prays with the greatest intention when he is in trouble. Rare are those who are moved to tremendous passion because they feel gratitude to Hashem. On the other hand, even tough-hearted people uh, are moved to fervent prayer when, God forbid, their only child is sick and in mortal danger. Their tefillahs in such a situation are of an intensity that even great Sadiqim reach only at special times. Chazal teach us, our sages tell us, why were our forefathers barren? Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu desires the prayers of Sadiqim. And he goes on to say, had Avraham and Sarah been blessed right away with the birth of Yitzchak, their resounding prayer of thanks would surely have made the great roar of the sea seem as nothing. Still, a prayer like this cannot compare to the intensity of their tefillah as they hoped for Hashem's salvation over many years. So this is the idea that when we call out, especially in this request section, we want to call out in a way where we really understand that everything that we have and everything that we need depends on Hashem. And we all, almost, you know, when things are going well and everything's good in our life, we have to work harder to arouse ourselves, to recognize that nothing is just a given. Nothing necessarily stays the same. And so, for example, and we'll talk about it in next week's bracha, you know, there's an idea that you should pray for good health while you have it, that it should continue and not wait, God forbid, until something's wrong. Um, one other idea, which I've mentioned before, and I just want to remind you again, is that Hashem runs the world, and this is again Rabbi Pincus, as if he doesn't see and he doesn't know what is not brought to his attention. And this is the way Hashem set up the law of nature. And he does this because 
you know, on a deeper level, it allows us to have free will and divine providence in our lives. So just the last idea here that I want to say is... Um, He's not a helicopter parent. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so Hashem runs the world as if he doesn't see anything. This applies as well to Hashem seeing our troubles. A person could be in great distress, but if he does not spell out his troubles before his creator, then the rules of Hashkacha dictate that Hashem does not see them or hear them, so to speak. Our troubles appear before him in heaven only as we present them to him. Okay, just another little reminder there, because of course it's counterintuitive, right? God, we figure he knows everything that's going on with us. Of course, he wants to help us. But the concept of prayer and the power of prayer is that the um, sources and the sages tell us that it says that if Hashem doesn't hear or see us, unless we call out, unless we create that relationship. Okay, I don't want to spend too much time on this. Just a post that I got recently about Natan Sharansky, maybe you got it too about uh, Anatoly Sharansky, who I'm sure you all know is a famous refusenik. And um, somebody said how wonderful it is to live in Israel because there's always these Jewish heroes walking around. She was in the bakery standing behind him and she is, was a teacher of Tehillim and she couldn't help but ask him about the story that he was famous for, which was that he smuggled in one of those teeny weeny Tehillims that we all get as souvenirs when we're kids, a pretty little one. He smuggled that Tehillim into his cell and he was in solitary, solitary confinement for part of his time there, which is considered the worst of all tortures. And he said that it was this tiny little book of Tehillim that kept him sane and that filled him with hope. And that's what really kept him going. So this woman asked him, she said, do you still have that? Um, uh, do you still have that to heal him? So right then and there, he reached into his pocket and he pulled out this tiny, tattered book of to And she went on to ask him, she said, do you carry it with you wherever you go? And Sharansky, without pausing, said, it carries me. Okay. So looking at our prayer today, for those of you who have a sitter in front of you, the words are Re'eva Anyenu. Behold, look at our affliction, the Anyenu, Veriva Rivenu, take up our grievance, fight our fight. Mehera and 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 redeem us quickly. For your name, do it for you, not just for us, but do it for you, Hashem. Because you are a powerful redeemer. You, Hashem, are the source of all blessing. Go El Yisrael, the one who redeems Israel. And it's in the present tense. Not the one who redeemed, meaning from Egypt, but the one who present day redeems us now. So let's talk a little bit about this prayer, and then we'll go into the words themselves. So first of all, this prayer is out of order. Really, it should be together with all the prayers that come later about the Ula, Tekab Shofar, right? Uh, 
build up your city, Jerusalem. And later on, we're going to see that's where all the prayers are clustered about Mashiach coming, etc. So why did the Anshe Knesset Gadola decide to put the prayer here? So they wanted it to be the seventh prayer because the number seven alludes to the time of Mashiach and the ultimate redemption. For those of you who uh, maybe didn't grow up in the 60s, but remember the uh, the Broadway show Godspell. Was it in Godspell? There was a song, The Age of Aquarius, right? When the moon is in the seventh house. Okay, shouldn't sing. And yeah, nobody's old enough for that, right? I just got a meme recently that said, if you remember your ho- your phone number from when you were a kid, but you can't remember your password, then you're in my generation. <laughs> okay um so the seventh house so that that song actually i once heard alludes to the idea of shabbat the ultimate shabbat when the moon is in the seventh house and jupiter collides with mars then peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars must have been a jew who wrote that and um anyway that that refers or is an allusion to the seventh house or the seventh day the 7,000th year, right? Because as Jews, we believe that the world as it is will last the way it is for 6,000 years. We're in the year 5,781. So we are very close to what Judaism says is the end of the story. Just like the six days of the week, there are 6,000 years that correspond to those days. And the seventh day, which is Shabbos, is considered to be the 7,000th year, which corresponds to the time of, of world redemption, of Mashiach coming, and all that that will usher in. So that's why they wanted this prayer here. Also, this prayer follows the prayer on tshuva and forgiveness. Because when it comes to personal redemption, right, each one of us, um, it can only happen after a person goes through the process of teshuva, returning to his true self, which we spoke about in that bracha, returning to Hashem, returning to our pristine self that is aligned with Hashem's purpose in this world, and forgiveness. And we touched on this idea of forgiveness last week. In this bracha, specifically the one, Salah Lanu Avinu, we talked about Hashem forgiving us and wiping away our sins. And of course, forgiveness is part of that process. And we talked about how we are meant to emulate Hashem and forgiving others. And in the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah, it says that to the degree that you forgive other people, that's the degree to which Hashem forgives you. So if you, you know, find ways and reasons for how you can forgive others, Hashem will do the same for us. And um, I just, last week, I wanted to um, find you something a little more potent, but I recommend this book by Edith Ager, The Choice. I mean, millions of people have read it, but she's really amazing. And she talks about freedom and forgiveness. And... um, I'm just going to read you a little bit because I know reading isn't the best way to do things, but she says it better than I could. She says, my own search for freedom and my years of experience as a licensed clinical psychologist has taught me that suffering is universal, but victimhood 
is optional. There's a difference between victimization and victimhood. We are all likely to be victimized in some way in the course of our lives. At some point, we will suffer some kind of affliction or calamity or abuse caused by circumstances or people or institutions over which we have little or no control. This is life, and this is victimization. It comes from the outside. It's the neighborhood bully, the boss who rages, the spouse who hits, the lover who cheats, the discriminatory law, the accident that lands you in the hospital. In contrast, victimhood comes from the inside. No one can make you a victim but you. We become victims not because of what happens to us, but when we choose to hold on to our victimization, we develop a victim's mind, a way of thinking and being that is rigid, blaming, pessimistic, stuck in the past, unforgiving, punitive, and without healthy limits or boundaries. We become our own jailers when we choose the confines of the victim's mind. And I'll just read you one more thing that I thought was incredible. She goes back later in life to visit Auschwitz. And, you know, this class was sponsored by Penny and her mother was a Holocaust survivor. And of course, Edith Ager was unusual and caused quite an uproar when she said that she forgives her, her um, the perpetrators of, of all of the atrocious things that she herself experienced as a child. But she goes back to Auschwitz later in her life and she says, I leave Auschwitz, I skip out. I pass under the words, Arbat macht frei. How cruel and mocking were those words when we realized that nothing we could do would set us free. But as I leave the barracks and the ruined crematories and the watch houses and the visitors and the museum guard behind me, as I skip under the dark iron letters toward my husband, I see the words spark with truth. Work has set me free. I survived so I could do my work. Not the work the Nazis meant, the hard labor of sacrifice and hunger of exhaustion and enslavement. It was the inner work of learning to survive and thrive, of learning to forgive myself, of helping others to do the same. And when I do this work, when I'm, then I am no longer the hostage or the prisoner of anything. I am free. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about freedom. So what's the difference between Jewish freedom, the concept of geula, redemption, and that of secular freedom? So we have in Pirkei Avos in the Mishnah, it says regarding the Torah in Perik Vav, um, Mishnah Bet. It says in English that the Lucho, the um, Ten Commandments, were carved into the stone. And the word for carved is the word harut. But the sages say, don't read the word harut. Change the vowels underneath and you can find the word cherut, which means don't read carved, read free, freedom. Because the Torah was our ticket to being able to know what true freedom is. So just a second on, you know, the difference between the Jewish idea of freedom, which means, you know, serving God, having mitzvot, having a derech and a mission and a purpose in life, 
and the secular idea of freedom. Okay. Um, so I've quoted before, you know, the famous Jew, Bob Zimmerman, uh, known as Bob Dylan, right? Who wrote a song during his religious period where he basically encapsulated the idea that there really is no such thing as freedom. That, you know, you're going to have to serve somebody in this world. And his song says it could be the devil or it could be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, Ben Shapiro, who you all know as a conservative commentator, he says it very succinctly. He says, basically, people have three choices with, with what they will worship. There are only these three choices and have only been since the beginning of, of, of mankind. And that is a human being will either serve God, the state, or himself. And, you know, as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs uh, said, you know, when they do an archaeological dig of our generation that we're living in, he said they will find, you know, hundreds and thousands of self-help books, and then they will find the selfie stick. And they will uh, conclude that this was a generation that worshipped the self. So we live in a very narcissistic time. And, you know, as Dina Schoonmaker said, they've removed narcissism from the uh, categories of mental illness because they claim that everybody has it today. So it was removed from the DSM-3 manual not so long ago. But the point is, is as Jews, you know, we understand that true freedom to be chavshi and am chavshi is, is, you know, people had trouble with that line in the Hatikva. Some people on the more right-wing side of religion, of Jewish Judaism said they didn't like that word, liot am chavshi, right? To be a free people, to do whatever we want. That land, that, that word connoted hefker, right? Not having, you know, anything that, um, that we're demanded to do or commanded to do, but rather do whatever you want, whatever feels good. It, it, it smacked too much of the secular concept of freedom. Okay. Interestingly, there was a man named Eric Fromm. Maybe you read his book, also a survivor of the Nazi war camps. He was a German, a Jewish German psychoanalyst who fled, fled the Nazis. And he wrote a book in 1941 about humanity's ambivalent relationship with freedom. And he says it's interesting. It's a paradoxical idea that on the one hand, people struggle for freedom. They struggle for freedom. But once they get it, then they struggle with freedom because they don't really know what to do with freedom once they get it. And he said, humans have a need for structure and order in their lives, and freedom can bring uncertainty and anxiety. It's not, freedom from, he concludes, is not enough. What you need is freedom towards, freedom to. While freedom, he says, seems appealing when people are not free, it brings a sudden and unexpected responsibility. Now, this bracha that we're looking at just as with all other brachas, when did the malachim, when did the angel say the end of the bracha, Baruch atah Hashem, Goel Yisrael, blessed are you God who, who releases, who redeems um, Israel. So they said it, we're told, during God's taking out of the Jewish people from Egypt. Now, of course, we know the word Mitzrayim 
The source of the word Mitzrayim is Mitzar, narrowness, confined. It um, is a picture of how the Jews felt in Egypt, also in terms of their personal sense of self. They were constricted, right? There's even an idea that in Egypt, we lost our ability to pray. We were idol worshipers. We lost our identity. We were Egyptian in every way, except for our language, our dress, and our names. Our speech, we're told, was in exile. That's why Pesach, Pesach is called, you know, we call it Passover in English, but Pesach also means Pesicha, the mouth speaks. The mouth is now able to express itself now that we came out of that narrow, confined place and uh, reattached ourselves to our true identity or rediscovered who we are as a Jewish people, each one individually and as a nation, because that's where we were formed, right, as a nation. So this bracha was said when Hashem promises to take the Jews out of Egypt with the four expressions of geula, right, the four cups of wine that we drink, correspond to the four expressions of Geula. What were they? Four expressions of Geula. So why do we need these four words again in Hebrew? They all mean take out, take out, take out, take out. But each one is telling us a different aspect of going from slavery, from a state of being not free to a place of freedom. And this is how it works. Vehotseti means we were freed from slavery. We were still in Egypt, but they stopped enslaving us. That happened, I think, at the very beginning of the Makot, that it was over, maybe even before the Makot began. Vehitsalti, God took us literally physically out of Egypt. Vega'alti means he redeemed us, meaning he took us, which was a really long process, Part of our getting out was to get rid of our slave mentality because, you know, you can take a person out of a place, you know, as they say, you can take Devorah Vale out of St. Catherine's, but you can't take St. Catherine's out of Devorah Vale. You can take Renee Adelsberg out of Brooklyn and Gail Weiss, but you ain't going to take Brooklyn out of Gail and Renee, right? So the point is, is, you know, you can take us out of Egypt, but it doesn't mean we're free, as Edith Ager said, because you continue to be a victim. You continue to feel victimized. And we have no better example of that than the Black people, right? The Black people experienced freedom from. They left. They were uh, freed from slavery. But the story continues because freedom towards a mission, a goal, a purpose was missing. And that's why we still see what has been the result of a freedom without structure and parameters, of a freedom that includes victimhood, where people never rose above the victimhood and decided to free themselves mentally. Because as Edith Ager says, we all experience victimhood or can become you know can live as victims if we don't choose to live otherwise so these four stages was a process by which god took us out of egypt and of course he took us to the lakakti is the last thing the lakakti he took us to him he took us to harsinai he gave us the torah 
and we became his people. We became the chosen people, the choosing people, or as uh, William Norman Ewer, a British journalist at the turn of the century said about us, how odd of God to choose the Jews. It's not so odd. The Jews chose God. Another spin on us being chosen, right? Well, what is that kind of term? Is that elitism? Is that a feeling of superiority? No, the idea is that we chose gods. We were the choosing people. We exercised our free will. Okay, let's look at the prayer. Hashem, look at our suffering and our affliction. And the word anyenu, for those of you who know Hebrew, the root of that word is the word ani, a poor person. We're spiritually poor, Hashem. So see our affliction, see our spiritual poverty. Again, personal redemption can only come after tshuva and forgiveness. And as the Katzka Rebbe said, a broken and contrite heart is the wholest heart. The blessings of a broken heart. Isn't that a book that, um, what's her name wrote when her son was killed in Israel in the cave in Tekoa? The blessing of a broken heart. Um, I think Sherry Mandel. That's right, Sherry Mandel. So this book, this, um, th- these words, Re'eva Anyenu, look at our afflictions, refers to our enemies, but it also refers to our inner enemy, which is the poverty of spirit, trans- which translates into our dis- inability to overcome our own personal Yetzirah, right? This is the real enemy. As it says in Masila um, Sisharim, he talks about the Yetzirah at the beginning of the book, The Path of the Just, Rabbi Chaim Moshe Lutzato. You know, he says, you've just come back from a war. You've beat up your enemy. You've been out there on the battlefield, you know, for days and months fighting your enemy, and you've been victorious. And now you're coming back home. But he says, but guess what? That enemy that you just defeated out there on the battlefield is nothing compared to that enemy that resides within you. That Yetzirah, which is always present, which is always scheming at how to take us down, how to prevent us from reaching our tachlis, our mission in this world, prevent us from being happy, prevent us from having what we need, because after forgiveness and shuva should come joy. And that joy is the, uh, the, the wind under our wings, the simcha that helps us to achieve our mission in this world. So these afflictions that we're talking about, sometimes we bring about our own re- afflictions because of our lack of resolve and focus of purpose in this world. And we are enslaved to our own passions to our own short-term vision or our sense of self, which is full of limiting beliefs that are not real. And breaking free from the prison of the mind is the first and most challenging place to begin the work of true freedom. 
let alone the outside forces that pull us in all kinds of ways to get distracted from what our true purpose is in this world, all of the physical distractions, the immediate gratification, gratification, the, the um, pull towards immediate pleasures, right? Taking the short, long road as opposed to the long, short road, I like to say. You know, when we give in to these things. So we're saying, Hashem, look at us. Help us triumph over adversity. Relieve our stress and suffering. Help us cope with our challenges. Now, this prayer comes before the next prayer, which is all about health. Because so much illness has its source in emotional, psychosomatic disorders. And so this is a prayer where we're really asking for the healing of the soul. Because before we can ask for the body's healing, we have to address what is going on within us, where our soul is in need of repair, in need of medicine and nourishment, so that our body, which is simply the temple of the soul, that which houses the soul, should be you know, complete and well to be able to help the soul fulfill its mission in this world. So, okay, so the next is the Riva Rivenu, which means Hashem, fight our fights. Now, the seventh letter of the Hebrew language is the letter Zion, which is when this prayer comes out, seven, the seventh prayer. And Zion in in English, means weapon. When we're, ta- we're t- talking to Hashem now, we're davening to Hashem, we're saying prayer, Hashem, is our most potent weapon. These are for their, you know, these with their chariots and these with their hor- horses. But we, Hashem, our weapon is our voice. The voice is the voice of Yaakov. There the rabbis teach us our greatest strength as Jews is our ability to call out, is our ability to bring God down into this world and allow him to make changes in it. Through our beseeching, asking, whether we deserve it or not is not even a condition, right? Often, as human beings and as the ploy of the Yetzirah, and this, you know, David Amalek talks about it. My enemies say, ah, who's going to listen to you, David? You just sinned with Bathsheba. You, you're not perfect. Why would God help you? So this is something that we all struggle with and this is part of our limiting beliefs that keep us prisoners that god giving us what we need and what we want is not dependent on our deeds it's not dependent on us being perfect it's a loving father parent who wants to give their child and gives us much much more than we ever could ever deserve so that should never hold us back from asking Hashem, you fight our battles because the greatest disservice we can do to Hashem is that line in the Torah, Kochi va'otsam yadi. The strength and the might of my hand did this. Not you, Hashem. It was my business acumen. It was my intelligence. It was my talent. It was my hard work that got me to where I am. 
another belief that is an illusion. Yes, Hashem blesses our efforts. As we learned in Bitachon, we have to make efforts, but the results are completely not in our hands. It's a tax that we pay to have to make these efforts. But whatever the results are, God decides them based on what we need, what our purpose, it tells us what our purpose is in this world. If God blesses us with a lot of money, if God blesses us with a lot of intelligence, it's a, it's a signpost saying, I gave you this because this is part of your mission. This is how you will fulfill yourself in this world and be part of the story that's unfolding. This is the role that you have to play. I once asked Robertson Heller, how do you know? How do you know what your mission is in this world? How do you know what your tough gate is? Right? The question everybody has. She says, it's right in front of you. It's the next step you take. It's the circumstances of your life. It's the people that are in your life. It's whatever Hashem endowed you with, materially, spiritually, uh, you know, emotionally. It's your negative character traits and your positive character traits. It's all of those things. It's not across the sea. It doesn't demand great, you know, thought and contemplation. It's right in front of you. It's whatever you're struggling with. It's all part of your mission. We know that when Yaakov prepared to meet Asa, of course, he sent gifts and he and he got ready to fight, but he also dovened. That was part of his preparation for being successful. Okay, prayer is a weapon. It's compared to an arrow and a sword. We said before that an arrow, the further you pull the arrow back, meaning the closer it comes to your heart, the more you pray with intensity with your heart, the further the arrow flies. And it's also compared to a sword. Why a sword? Because the rabbis tell us that just simply saying the words of the Shemona Esrei, even without any kavana at all, you're thinking about your grocery list, you're thinking about, you know, what, whether your kid is going to get tested positive or negative, or God forbid, your cough is the sign of COVID. Whatever it is you're thinking about during Shemona Esrei after the first, you know, three brachas where you had it all together and then you lost it. Okay, your mindfulness went out the window. The idea of it being a sword is that rabbis tell us just saying the words of the Shemona Esrei makes an impression even without kavana, so how much more so when you are saying those words with kavana? The words of the Shemona Esrei are like, you know, a modem in a computer. We don't understand how it works that I can like send an email and it travels all the way across the world and it hits the person that I want to reach or a text or all the things that we have technologically. The Chafetz Chaim said that the reason that our generation needs technology is so that because we're so physical and so material and so not evolved spiritually the way our ancestors were, that we need these tangible things that will make us understand what and who God is. So the words of the Shemona Esri were told are like pressing click, pressing send on your computer. When you say these words with Kavana, you're pressing send and it goes up to the Kisei HaKavod, 
to the holiest of holy places, and Hashem is receiving them, and he wants to hear from us in our own words, in these incredible words that are that are imbued, uh, saturated with divine inspiration, with Ruach HaKodesh. And they're the, they're, they get to the address. We press send, and th- these are the words. These are the configuration of Hebrew letters, like that inside of the computer that we don't understand. It's the technology in spiritual sense that gets things up, right? The Chafetz Chaim said, well, you know, tape recorders were invented so that we hear that, wow, I, I can say something and my voice is recorded. Well, now you can understand when it says that Hashem hears everything you say and everything is recorded. Right? And when you get to the next world, you see, you, you hear everything you said. <clears throat> or, you know, a camera. Now we can understand in our generation that when it says Hashem sees and it's forever. So, you know, in our puny little, uh, spiritually undeveloped way, now we can understand that with the invention of the camera, that you can take a picture and it's there forever. Okay. So, all Jews are connected. Redeem us quickly for the sake of your name, right? Redeem us. This is, this is talking about us, the national, as a national people, the national suffering is, we're all part of it, and personal suffering. We say, we pray in the plural. Because even if we don't need it, some other Jew does need it. You don't need good health. You don't need health. Your health is good. But we pray always in the plural because we're all connected, right? The idea of interdependence. Your success is my success. Your failure is my failure. Your illness is my illness. Your, you know, reaching your potential in life is good for me. No Jew can be left behind. Each one of us is a letter in the in the Torah. If one letter is missing or there's something wrong with it, the Torah can't be read. That's how important you are to me and my reaching my toughness, my reaching my fulfillment and my purpose in this world. Why do this, Hashem? Do it for your sake. We said that at the beginning. At the beginning of the Shemona Esri, we said that. Right? If you remember in the first bracha, we say... You should bring a redeemer to the children of your children. Why? For your sake, Hashem, because when Jews are in exile, when Jews are persecuted, when Jews are oppressed, it is a Hillel Hashem. It is a desecration of your name. God, we're your people. If the world can, you know, if Jewish blood is cheap, if a woman, you know, an Orthodox woman in Israel can be murdered by a Palestinian or an Arab walking around, there's something wrong. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. It's a Hill Hashem. We're your chosen people. Save us and redeem us for your sake, for your reputation. Okay? Kigoel Chazak Atta, because you are a powerful redeemer. And again, the word Goel is in the present tense. You are redeeming us right now at every moment and every second. You know, Hashem is taking us closer and closer to the time of Mashiach, to the seventh millennium. 
right? We say there are two ways that Mashiach can come. He can come earlier. He could come before the year 7,000. But that's only, God forbid, if things are so, well, wait one sec, two ways of him coming. One way is that um, we are so good. We are so wonderful. <laughs> we, uh, in every generation, we're told there is somebody who has the potential to be the Mashiach. But he lives and dies like any other human being. And he is a human being. Okay, obviously. But if that generation doesn't merit it, meaning that they have not risen to the challenges of that time and created a space for Mashiach to come, then he doesn't come. So he can come when we're good enough. The other way he can come is when we're so bad, when we are so in need of salvation, when the world could get no lower or no worse. So that's another way that Hashem sends Mashiach. But the other idea simply is, is that the time period for which this will happen has to end at the year 7,000. In other words, one way or another, Mashiach is coming after you've had your birthday in the year 6,999. How old will we be then? <laughs> we'll be back again, maybe for another round. Who knows? Anyway, um, Mashiach has to come by that time. So, but in the meantime, everything that happens, this pandemic that we're going through, this pandemic is just bringing us closer, you know, as so many people have said, and there have been so many drushes on it, so many rabbis, we know anyway that we talk about this time period in Jewish history as the time of Hevle Mashiach, the birth pangs of Mashiach that it's always the darkest just before the dawn, that the time just before a woman gives birth is the most intense and difficult time, and that we are living at that time in history right now. Most of history has been played out. God willing, the Holocaust is the last we are going to see of anything with such in, in such incredible proportion of suffering that the Jewish people went through. We're looking for, towards a future where the non-Jews of the world will do tshuva, those who are not as wicked as wicked can be. They will do tshuva. They will recognize that the Jewish people have been the bearers of God's message throughout history. They will join us. They will want to learn from us. There's even a, 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 a an image that the non-Jews will grab onto the tzitzits of the Jewish men and say, take us with you to Jerusalem and teach us your Torah, right? Teach us your wisdom. And of course, one of the ideas of Mashiach, there are different opinions of how it's going to be. The Rambam, for example, Maimonides says nothing is going to change. It's not going to be magical. What's going to change is that there will not be a Jew anywhere in the world that will be oppressed. Okay. The Jewish people obviously will be recognized as God's people. And as I said, the people who, the nations that persecuted us will do tshuva. And those nations that are completely wicked will be obliterated in some kind of war, some kind of something. And the world will shake. 
uh, I've heard it as a metaphor of a giant sieve that God will shake the world and only the people who are able to hold on will not slip through the holes. Hold on to their belief in God. Hold on and trust that from the beginning of time, God had a purpose in creating the world and in an end purpose, right? I just want to, in Tehillim, I was just on Shabbos. It says um, in, in Psalm 130, it says, uh, for with you is forgiveness in order that you be feared. I hope for ha- Adon- I hope for Hashem. My soul hopes and for his word I wait. Uh, my soul waits for my master more than the watchman waits for the morning. More than the watchman waits for the morning. It repeats this twice. So I saw a commentary from Rashi. He says, there are people who are always waiting for Mashiach. Whatever happens, like a pandemic, they're always saying, okay, it must be that God is bringing the world to its to its end purpose. It must be that we're getting closer. It must be that this is the birth pangs of the time before Mashiach will come. And Rashi says there that these people get credit for hoping, even when their hopes are dashed and when it doesn't necessarily happen. But just for hoping and looking at the times we're living in and saying, we must be getting closer. You know, if there was any time, there's no time like now that the world is sitting at their computers and waiting for some great statesman or whatever, however the Mashiach will appear as somebody who everybody in the entire world will say, wow, this guy really talks sense. What he's saying really, you know, is true wisdom and truth and the world will be ready to hear it. So this is the time that we're hoping for. And of course, you know, every Shabbos, before Shabbos comes in in the Chadodi, we say, um, what do we say? Uh, we say, what's the first verse in, in L'chad Odi? Um, who remembers? Come on, unmute yourself. My brain is done. Shamor v'zachor b'dibur achad Hashem echad echad. Anyway, it's, I think it's in the first verse. It basically says that God created um, Shabbos and then he created the world. First in mind was Shabbos. First in thought, machshava tihila, right? That first in thought was Shabbos, meaning, and I'll end with this, that before God created the world, he had a plan and he had a purpose. And the purpose was Shabbos. Shabbos is the goal of creation. Shabbos is the idea of bringing olam haba into this world, right? It's a taste of the next world, bringing the bliss the spiritual bliss, the pleasures that the soul uh, enjoys on Shabbos. Of course, we give the body a lot to eat to keep it quiet, but really Shabbos is supposed to be a soul pleasure, right? So God had in mind before he created the world that he's going to take this world to a place of Shabbos for eternity that he's going to take this world to a place where Olam Haba and Olam Hazeh 
eventually my husband once explained it to me right now they're like this right they're parallel world worlds but eventually if i can show you they're going to intersect and that gives us a bit of an idea of what the world will be like because even after mashiach comes we still have tahiyas amazing we still have resurrection of the dead it's going to become a very different place it's going to become a place where our bodies are less powerful and our souls are what leads us. Even though we'll still have a physical body. But our body will be so saturated with soul desires. There won't be a conflict between the two. There won't be this war, this battle, which we're fighting now, but which is the way that we earn our, you know, earn our existence earn our eternity by rising to this challenge, to this inner fight. Hashem, look at our affliction, the affliction that comes from our body and soul that are constantly in antagonism, right? In conflict with each other. The body wants to sleep. The body wants to die. The body wants to eat. The body wants pleasure. And the soul says, I want eternity. I want goodness. I want... uh, I want mitzvot. I want to attach myself to Hashem. I want to live forever. Right? So again, the idea is that we're heading towards the year 7,000 because the seventh represents Shabbos and God, we believe, had a purpose in creating this world. The, The purpose was to take us to a place of Shabbos, to take us to a place where our our external and internal selves are at peace with one another, where we can truly live to the um, to our greatest and maximal ability with all of our um, talents and our successes leading us. Um, okay. May that day be soon. Give us a bracha that, um, God willing, we should all experience this very soon. May this pandemic bring us another step closer to seeing the national and personal ga'ula that we're all yearning for. Because when we as a nation are redeemed, all of our personal problems will be resolved as well. Maybe I'll just end with this. I'm sure you've all heard it, but it's always inspiring. Um, Mark Twain in his essay concerning the Jews understood who we were. He said, the Egyptian, Babylonian, and Persian rose and filled the world with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. The Jew saw them all and beat them all. All things are mortal, but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. And of course, he ended by saying, what is the secret of his immortality? And he didn't answer the question, but we know. We know the secret of our immortality is that when we got the Torah, we gained true freedom. Eitz chayim hila machazikim ba. Right, Torah is called a tree of life for those who hold on to it, for those who grab it tight. 
Because as long as we hold on to the Torah, as long as we hold on to that Torah while the world is shaking all around us, then we have, then we are connected to what is considered true life, true freedom. Tolstoy said, the famous Russian author was also fascinated by our endurance. The nation which neither slaughter nor torture could exterminate, which neither fire or sword of civilizations were able to erase from the face of the earth. The nation who first proclaimed the word of the Lord and passed it on to the rest of humanity. Such a nation cannot vanish. A Jew is eternal. So we're going to win this fight, but we have to keep asking for it because that's the way Hashem wants it to be. And that's the way we create relationship and attach ourselves. So thank you for listening and have a Shavua Tov. And you can unmute yourselves if you like. Thank you.